And what about this internet thing? Do you, do you know anything about that? Sure. The headline is, uh, the internet is big. Internet, eh? It is the big new thing. As we look back 10 years from now, the web is going to be the defining technology, the defining social moment for computing. Hello and welcome to ACFM, the home of the weird left. I'm Nadia Idol, and I'm joined as usual by my friends Jeremy Gilbert. Hello. And Kia Milburn. Hello. And today we're talking about the internet. So guys, why are we talking about the internet today? Uh, there's a couple of reasons, I think. Well, for me, anyway, for me, my relationship with the internet is going through a bit of a strange turn. Uh, um, a lot of the platforms I interact with have gone shit, <laughs> as uh, Cory Doctorow started talking about it recently. And the most noticeably, Twitter getting Elon Musk, etc. But like a lot of the other platforms as well, Facebook's unusable. Amazon is increasingly a pain in the ass and, and like, you know, basically not doing the functions that, that it originally attracted people to it. So it's almost as if a particular model of the internet, like platform capitalism, has reached its shit stage. <laughs> and so it could be it could be in crisis or not. And then the other the other reason I think it's interesting to talk about it is be, it is more foundational to this podcast. In you know, one of the way one of the reasons we started talking about this sort of stuff, acid communism and originally acid Corbynism, was this idea that acid capitalism is in some ways one of the sort of hegemonic ideologies of our time. And that comes out of this whole idea of like the, where the internet came from and personal computing came from. People have talked about it as the California ideology, etc. This sort of melding of countercultural ideas with like right-wing neoliberal economic ideas. And I think that story has come under crisis to some degree because the, some of the prominent figures around Silicon Valley are no longer these sort of socially liberal and economically conservative types. They're your Peter Thiels and Elon Musk, who are much more associated with the far right, in fact, white nationalism, in fact, in, in some cases. What about you, Jeremy? Yeah, yeah, all of the above. And I think it's, I mean, it's always interesting to try to think about the internet, if only because it's so difficult to separate out discussion of the internet today from all the rest of our activities you know it's an interesting thing right now into the social sciences and some parts of the humanities that people still want to sort of uh, run courses or create academic posts which are focused on digital media or you know digital society and on the one hand it's obvious why people would do that it's really these are really important topics but they also it always raises this question I think as to well, what what aspects of society or media or culture is now not digital or is not part of the internet in some sense is not doesn't is not incorporated into it. So I think it's a, it's an interesting intellectual exercise to ask yourself if you can even isolate the internet as a phenomenon from everything else that's going on around us and that we're living through. I think in some ways you can and in some ways you can't. But it's always an interesting topic to think about. Yeah, definitely. So I'm also interested in in looking at the internet in a different way, I guess. So I'm interested on the effect of this, I guess, actually quite similarly to what you just said, Jeremy, in fact, the internet 
and the effect of it on our everyday lives. So I'm really interested in what it does to our sense of self and what that means for us as both political actors and as agents of change in the world. Like what does it do to our brains, but also like how do we use it to help or hinder like organizing? And I do think when I was thinking about this as we we're preparing for the show, I do think that we are at a point in history of just being able to have just enough distance from the thought of the kind of Internet's uh, inception to be able to look back and perhaps analyze the effects that this technology has had on us as uh, and our existence as human beings. So that's kind of, in a nutshell, I guess, why I'm interested in talking about the internet. But before we get into the meat of the show, um, I just want to remind listeners that we now have a newsletter. If you haven't signed up yet, please go to navara.media forward slash ACFM newsletter, where you will find all sorts of bonus content from us. You'll be getting the newsletter after each new trip episode. And for more music and less chat from us, you can follow the ever-expanding ACFM playlist on Spotify. Just search for ACFM. And then finally, to support us to continue making this podcast, please support our hosts, Navara Media, for as little as £1 a month by going to navara.media forward slash support. So without further ado, let's start talking about the subject of the internet. So I think we wanted to start off by talking about our own relationships to the internet and kind of how we experience the, the internet being uh, digital migrants, the three of us, which obviously makes us sound very old. But there you go. Who wants to go first chatting about that stuff? Yeah. So the dig digital migrant bit is we grew up where the, the internet didn't exist or if it existed, we didn't interact with it, basically. Uh, and so we can remember the time before just about before personal computing, I don't know, um, and then before the internet, and like, and then we've lived through various waves of the internet. It's it's changed form very very dramatically. I think also interestingly, like the stories about what it is and where it's going have also changed quite often. I think it'd be interesting to get into that later. But like my first, I, I distinctly remember my first interaction with the internet because my friend Boff, Boff Worley, invited a load of people around to his house to show us the internet. <laughs> he showed us, like, gave us a sort of lesson in, like, TCP slash IP uh, protocols um, and, and these sorts of things. Were you looking at web pages or Usenet? Or yeah, it was, it, was, it was Usenet. Yeah, he was like, these sort of things. But, like, the World Wide Web was just coming online, and the first browsers were there, so we also sort of got introduced to that. But it was, yeah... Usenet news groups, um, and my first like interaction with the internet was dominated by subscribing to email lists on on Listserv, basically. Which is, I suppose, it was a platform, wasn't it? I suppose. I've got another funny anecdote actually about when I, I joined Facebook relatively early on because I was working as a teach a, a TA, you know, basically I was doing a PhD and working as a teaching associate at the politics department in Leeds. And one of the, this, I had a seminar on a Thursday, I think, and the students from that seminar set up a, pa a Facebook page called the Kia Mutton Chops Milburn Appreciation Page because <laughs> I had big mutton chop um, sidebones at the time. How many episodes have you been waiting for to, to, to share that fact <laughs> with our listeners? Well, I've been trying to crowbar <laughs> the, the topic of the internet in so I could tell people that. <laughs> <laughs> it's been taking me um, five years now, so uh, I'm glad it's come around. 
but that's why I had to join Facebook to sort of work out what was what was on there, basically, make sure they weren't bad mouthing me behind my back. Yeah, so that that sort of that I can remember my first interactions with it, and like the shock of like when you sort of realise that all of a sudden lots of like texts and stuff like that you couldn't have access to. So that's in the early internet in particular. Lots of texts I couldn't you couldn't have access to before, really hard to track down, were suddenly available. I remember that being a big thing. And then, you know, I really remember distinctly when the, the rise of things like Napster and file sharing apps, that was this real shock moment as well of like, God, you can now access anything for free. This is amazing. This is like the completely different world to the world I, I grew up in. I was thinking about this. I thought this was a really interesting question for us to look into because it's got me thinking about the difference between internet in your pocket and internet per se. So so similar to you, Kier, my initial story with the internet involved my friends dragging me to a computer. So this was um, in my second year of university, and I was, I was 17 in my second year of university. And my friend convinced me to set up an email, and I didn't understand why this would be useful. I'd never seen the internet, and I'd never interacted with it. So she took me to the computer lab, and, and we tried to log into what used to be excite.com, to set up an email, but then we couldn't figure it out. So I think we used Hotmail and I got my first email address in, in 1998. And this got me thinking about what I was using the internet for. And by this point, you know, I had uh, we had bought one home computer for us at home. It was dial-up. Everyone who knows the dial-up sound uh, is definitely a thing of the 90s of that era. But we had one home computer. And the thing that the internet helped me with in the 90s was being able to communicate at a faster rate with my friends abroad. So this is the only thing that the internet was useful for for me in the in the 90s because I had so many friends abroad I was living in Egypt so instead of letter writing which is a big thing that I was doing when I was growing up I was writing a lot of letters to my friends we could now email each other and this seemed like a like a you know a crazy new technology to be able to to have but that's really kind of that's phase 1 that's the only only uh, interaction that I had with the internet I wasn't really I was a gamer but on Nintendo which wasn't online Really, I, I kind of didn't interact with the internet much beyond that. Then there was phase two, and I think this is as far forward as 2007 or 2008 when I set up my first Facebook and Twitter accounts. And until then, I hadn't been on, uh, you know, there wasn't any social media. I was kind of, I do remember MySpace and remember really liking it. And also, like you, Kia, I was on email lists, like activist email lists by that point when I was living in the UK. But I still wasn't using the internet, I guess, that regularly um, for my per for personal use. You know, I was print still printing out maps and stuff to find my way uh, around London. But then the Egyptian revolution happened and Twitter became really important in 2011. Uh, by that point, I was pretty hooked on Facebook, but didn't have the self-awareness of social media addiction. I ended up blogging about it uh, later. And, you know, and now I have a lot to say about social media addiction and sense of self and some of the stuff we'll talk about later. But then 2014, 2015 came online dating. And that was another sphere of which it became quite like I'd never experienced this before and suddenly there was this whole world of dating which was mediated 
online. And that's part of, I think, phase two, like Facebook, Twitter, and, and OkCupid for me um, between 2008 and 2015. But I only really got a smartphone in, in 2010. And I, you know, I still wasn't kind of using it in my pocket. And then I think phase three for me is when I had the internet in my pocket. And that changed a lot in terms of my communication. And going back to the original point that I was making, things like, you know, anyone who's a listener to the show who has family abroad that's not in, you know, America or Australia where you can still call relatively cheap is a complete game changer to be able to call abroad through the internet and be in touch with your family through the internet. Because previous to that, and in, until the early 2000s, you had to go to a corner shop, buy a card for 10 quid, scratch it out and use the home phone or whatever, or the mobile to be able to call you know, your family or friends in an, an affordable way. And this changed it because suddenly you could make phone calls abroad and not pay exorbitant amounts of money. What about you, Jeremy? Uh, well, I'm often conscious that you know, as a, a, a you know a white man from well from the sort of lower ranks of the public professional class, you know, public sector professional classes, but having climbed my way up a bit, I'm often conscious I'm sort of the subject for whom the internet was in, was created. Really, I mean, I often feel like the internet has made possible and has done loads of things I, I really wanted to be possible even before it existed. And when I was a kid, you know, we lived in Atlanta for a couple of years when I was a kid, because that's where my mum's from, when I was age uh, between nine and 11. And I made a couple of really good friends there. But then once we moved back to Britain, I was living in Scalmersdale, it was very, very difficult to stay in touch because like transatlantic phone calls in, in those days were incredibly expensive. So it was really, really difficult to be in touch with people. And we used to write to each other and we used to like record audio cassettes for each other. But I remember one time writing a letter to a friend in which... I like imagined as a sort of little story that I was using this new technology which enabled you to write a message and have it appear in front of the person some, somewhere else in the world immediately, like instant messaging, um, which I just sort of was imagining as a thing that could be possible. I mean, it was possible, actually. I mean, instant messaging was possible, technically. It was happening in you know, some places from the 60s if you were, had access to you know, university computer labs. But... And that so that was a really big deal. And then I guess our house, you know, my shared house in the nineties was like the first house I hold I knew, like to get online. I had a demon internet account. If anybody listening is old enough to remember what that meant. I had I had one of those as well, actually. And um yeah, I was using email and that for all those sort of things. But I was also I remember by the early two thousands I kept saying to people that I ought to put myself forward as a research subject for people who are interested in e commerce because I was a really early adopter of things like Amazon, actually. I'm really sorry to say it, but I have no nostalgia at all for the era of like bookshops and record shops. Like the amount of time, the amount of my life, like in in my twenties, I felt like I wasted like schlepping around town, going to record shops and bookshops, looking for a record or book they didn't have was just, you know, incredible. Listeners are going to be so disappointed to hear no, this, I know, Jeremy. I know. I, I'm uh, sorry. Yeah, I have, I have yeah, no nostalgia yeah. for it because it just, it literally, it was like a whole big, like those whole things I've done in my life, like probably most of the sort of DJing and sort of dance promotion and stuff. I literally, I just couldn't have done like if, if it wasn't for the internet, just because of the amount of time one had to spend like as an academic or someone looking for records, just schlepping around shops, it just took too much time. 
And of course, you know, that's what it's all been designed for. It's all been designed to facilitate, above all, people of a kind of international, professional class elite, you know, being able to pursue their interests and spend money, you know, without having to, you know, dirty their hands by participating in, in sluggish local communities, as would be represented by, you know, local bookshops or record shops or whatever. You know, when I was a, a teenager, I thought that the most exciting thing one could possibly do would be to produce a magazine of some kind. And then we're now living in a world in which just everybody can produce their own magazine that's been on the internet, in effect. And that's what blogging is, basically. And obviously, I was using email and e- all the email lists for sort of activism really early. I, I really self-consciously resisted. I think we probably talked about this when we did the episode about technology and talked about social media i very consciously resisted social media actually uh for a long time because i'd i'd already had some experience of how sort of compulsive just participating in forums and things could be also honestly though it was just being like quite close friends with mark you know fisher who was he was like had become you know i mean he's become like famous now as this critic of the internet but that's part of the internet culture that's because he was such a kind of internet addict that he has such a social media addict that it really sort of, you know, took over his mind for a while. And and that was a sort of cautionary tale for me. So I didn't get on any social media really in terms of participating until 2014. And that was only because I had a book to promote and my publishers wanted me to. But by that point, for example, my little club night, Beauty and the Beat, had already had its fortunes completely transformed by facebook by the fact that social media like made it possible to promote something like that without having to rely on the conventional intermediaries of the listings magazines which i'm sure i've probably talked about this before as well but you know internet theorists media theorists talk about one of the key roles of the internet being disintermediation you know the the removal of what had been conventional intermediaries between a broad public and various kinds of producer and retailer whether it's people selling books or records or whatever and you couldn't run a club night in london like without um the good time out without time out exactly and the people writing the time and it was like the fortunes of my little club night were completely dependent on the mood of whoever was writing the time out listings that week and there were some people working at time out listings who liked us and there was one guy who absolutely hated us because he thought we were earnest hippies and he hated that so the fact that we were able to disintermediate that was incredibly sort of liberating that brings us to this question uh, that I mentioned earlier about what Cory Doctorow's talked about the enshittification of the of the platforms basically the more going shit is that could you can you still promote a club night on Facebook I think you'd have to pay for it basically so that's I think it's an interesting one that it, that that experience of like of freedom of like this disintermediation or you know the removal of mediating institutions and they're basically their replacement by platforms. Do you know what I mean? Because that's what a platform is, basically. It's a mediating institution between two. Normally, something. Normally, the way they would think about it is like customers and buyers, something like that, basically. Yeah, that's true. That's true. We didn't really think about it that way for a little while because um, there were they they were removing the barriers towards the the the, the connections between between by you know customers and and sellers or something like that. But they. This is Cory Doctorow's argument: is that there's a sort of built-in dynamic to the to platforms, where they will recreate or erect increasing barriers 
between like the, the the two sort of the two sides of that being mediated, the buyers and customers or whatever, they'll increasingly like interfere with that and and, and fuck it up basically. Hey, is, is your guys' internet working? No, nobody's is. What's happening? There was a point at about, you know, the 20, 2007, 2008, 2009, where the internet still felt like a commons. It still felt free. Yeah. And now I think what you're saying is it's it's not. Because it's only, they only, they, it only became established within the platform economy that you had to, um, that the only way to make it make money was through advertising. That only became established around that time. You know, before that, they weren't sure. Like even like Google and Facebook, like were just sort of not sure how they were going to make money from it and whether there was going to be some other way to do it. And it's only around 20, 2005 to 2010, it's during that period that they all came to the conclusion that actually it's going to have to be an advertising medium. That's the only way you can make money with this stuff. So it was free. It was sort of a commons. And, and then they just, you know, they couldn't come up with any better way of making money from it. It goes in this cycle where it starts to interfere more and more and more with the usability that attracted you in the first place. Do you know what I mean? Which is like a monopolization sort of strategy. Like stuff like Amazon, etc., would run at a loss, you know, run at a loss for ages, or they would have lost leaders, etc. And of course, like, you know, companies like Uber, et cetera, Deliveroo have never made a profit. They probably never will. Do you know what I mean? They, they don't have a route to profitability, those companies. They they rely on, like, larger and larger sort of inputs of venture capital. But the point is, the goal that you're trying to get to is like a monopoly. So you get you get people to join Facebook. You offer something which is attractive and useful. But once you've got them there, then you can turn your attention to the people you're trying to sell it to and then you sort of like become really useful to the to the to the companies who want to buy the adverts or perhaps the companies who are selling to to amazon etc and then once they're once they're locked in we're all get locked in all of the attention of the of the platform is to sort of cash in and the way you cash in is like basically to erect more and more barriers that you have to pay more and more for twitter blue like so i think like 25 percent of all the cost of sales goes to amazon basically Right, you know, it's just incredibly difficult environment in which to sell things, uh, and like you know, their their search engine on Amazon, you know, more and more, it's like you, ha- you know, what you're getting is not things that their algorithms say you might like. It's the things that people have paid the most to do, and increasingly, like the th- the services or or the products that they actually physically own themselves. Do you know what I mean? Like, there's almost like a built-in cycle, and the reason we're really aware of it at the moment is because Twitter's doing a a real speed run on it because of Elon Musk, basically. Well, we can talk about Elon Musk and what's going on with that another time. There's also like a a business model issue that, you know, Facebook has, specifically Facebook. I think my my understanding is that Twitter's always had a bad or a not very successful money-making strategy, which is why, you know, business strategy, which is what Elon Musk is trying to turn around and and that's what we're experiencing on, on the user end. But Facebook has a problem, which is that it has saturated the market, that they do not think that they've reached, I think, something ridiculous, like half of the world's population. And there's a whole other half which are both China and people who are not related, not linked up to the internet at all, which they don't think they will be able to reach and or make money out of. So therefore, advertising and messing with the algorithms consistently is has uh, is, is, is become like central to like their business model of how they're going to make money. And therefore, why we see some of the effects, I think you're talking about, Kia, about what you're calling the 
in is it in shitification or just shitification? I was wondering why it's not just shitification, but in shitification <laughs> makes it sound more makes it sound more academic, I suppose. Uh, yes, I don't know why it's called enshitification. It's because it's an ongoing process, perhaps. Um, uh, oh, right, I see. Yeah, but like it, with Facebook, I find Facebook completely unusable these days uh, because uh, like, but I, I, I wanted what I wanted Facebook, and I used to use Facebook as what it was originally sold out, which was like a microblogging site. And in fact, Twitter in particular was sold as a microblogging site where you could just write your own posts, people could follow you. And then whoever you followed, you'd get to see what they produced, basically their pictures or their texts, et cetera. And that's that's what Twitter was always supposed to be in particular. And more and more, it gets replaced by, you know, no, we, we want we want algorithms which sort what you see. So you don't see, you know, you don't get to see what you follow, et cetera. You get to see what, it, what we give you. Originally, that gets sold as, you know, we're going to use our algorithms to put in front of you what we, what we think you would really enjoy basically get to see a, a repetition or, or uh, of what you already watch etc or you get like driven down a sort of rabbit hole of more and more extreme content these sorts of things but increasingly in, in things like facebook that's not what you get that you know you get whatever seems to produce more most profit and and recirculate the surplus within this sort of the ecosystem of facebook basically you, you reminded me of this point i think it was about Around 2014, 2015, where I think uh, Facebook's um, algorithm was not so sophisticated, and it kept making this mistake to me and my friends who were at the time, you know, talking about the Egyptian Revolution and like very Arab Spring and various different posts like that. But it kept giving us content ads to do with like Islamic dress. <laughs> so we kept getting like hijabi clothes and whatever and like you know burkini ads and stuff like that and we just all thought it was really funny because it clearly showed like the total stereotyping and misaligning of you know arab with you know islamic stuff and anyone who knows me knows that i'm not a big fan of religion at all so but i remember it was like a phenomenon at the time there was a point where anyone who said anything to do with the middle east was getting that type of ads and there was that point where clearly that was still being tested out but it must work at some point you know the clickbait yeah, I mean, I th I think the problem the di for Twitter in in particular is Facebook was. I don't think it's right to say it was its original conception was as microblogging site. It was a it was a social networking site, and it's the idea it's was more, it's more that I I was using it as a, a microblogging yeah, sure. site. But I think the thing with the social networking is well, it was basically the a site for people to maintain contact with friends, acquaintances, family, and share news with them and make plans with them. And in the process of doing that, you generate loads of data about your lifestyle, which can then be harvested and used for advertising. Twitter is a sort of microblogging site, and it doesn't really work. It doesn't really generate the level of data about your likely propensities as a consumer that Facebook does. And so... Yeah, Facebook's really good at it. Apparently, you're 10 clicks. It's 10 clicks. Yeah. Like 10 likes, sorry. If you like 10 things, then then Facebook finds out more about you than most of your close friends know about yeah, you. Yeah, that's, that's the, what they say. That's the thing. So, uh, so yeah, Twitter has got a problem, really, because Twitter it became this sort of you know cacophonous public sphere in which people were mostly talking about public issues rather than personal issues. But that isn't a reliable guide to people's consumption habits. So they haven't been able to make nearly as much money off adverts, advertising as Facebook. But that, that was one of the big changes in Facebook's algorithm as well, wasn't it? It was that it would it really downgraded discussions of public issues or links that went outside 
of the the Facebook Meta ecosystem. Yeah, like really downgraded that, and then photographs, personal photographs, will be really upgraded, etc. And so, but and as I was using, you know, but most of my stuff is. <laughs> is discussion of public issues and uh, links to uh, uh, interesting articles, et cetera, et cetera. You just basically, it's not of any use to me anymore. One of the thing, one of the interesting things about this, this, this like in shitification process <laughs> is it does highlight, you know, the, the corruptive influence of capitalism, just to put it gross form. If you know, if you had some sort of public or commonly owned or commonly governed version of any of these apps, they, basically wouldn't have to change you know <laughs> what people want from him is pretty clear you know if twitter could get taken over by its users perhaps you'd have you know there'd be discussions about the level of moderation etc but like it there, there's not this drive to sort of like maximize returns etc do you know what i mean you know that we, we should go back and talk a little bit about the internet but like there was no reason why the internet was always going to go in this direction do you know what i mean so there's that there was the the French uh, Minitel system, which predated the internet. In fact, I think it's the 1970s and into the 1980s. It's the 80s and 80s phenomenon. Is it the 80s? Minitel, yeah, 70s yeah. would be a bit early, wouldn't it? Um, in which, you know, basically it was a, a means of, you know, you could connect up various things. But it was it was basically, it was um, a state-provided service. Still ended up with a lot of porn and and uh, sex hookup pages. A lot of things well, yeah, <laughs> does end up in porn. I'm pretty sure it is, yeah. Yes, yes. Um, I mean, yeah, I mean, p- porn has been one of the drivers of technology, you know, internet technology, basically. I mean, you're right, of course. I mean, I, you know, it's the interaction between the form of the social network and the logic of capital accumulation is what produces the effects we're talking about, the phenomena mm-hmm. as we now mm-hmm. experience it. It's not, it's not inherent to the tech the technology you blocked me on facebook and now you're going to die i think we should play internet friends by knife party which includes the fantastic lyric you blocked me on facebook and now you're going to die now you're going to die which is a electronic quite industrial kind of painful for the ears type sound but i think it kind of emulates a lot of like the mental frustration and uh, fizzing brain you get from too much scrolling through uh, social media and you blocked me on Facebook and now you're going to die will be the, the, the title of the <laughs> newsletter that we'll send out. So sign up now. <laughs> you blocked me on Facebook. fucking internet so one thing that i'd really like to talk about is about dopamine addiction and dopamine addiction at scale so so the way that i observe this in in the world is you know there's more and more articles being written about this stuff it's something that at least in my circles which are probably not representative you know of most people 
where there are discussions where people are aware of, you know, the kind of click uh, dopamine addiction hit that you get from, you know, checking social media, etc. So I first read about this stuff properly, and then I started. It, it really affected how I um, saw Facebook, and when I went off it, and I don't go on it, and except once every two weeks still since I started reading up on this stuff in in 2016. I read a book by Daniel Levitine, I think, called The Organized Mind. And, you know, there's very few, like, majorly pointed statements that are made in that book. But I, I think I remember even from memory, I'm going to say page 17, second paragraph down. I might be wrong. I haven't got the book in front of me. But, like, he basically says, consistently scrolling on social media is, you know, a, a pathology. Like, it effectively is an illness. And I actually never read about it in those terms until then. Now the stuff is, like, widely out there. so. I'm just wondering, like fast forwarding like six years or six or seven years since I read that stuff and it was a bit of a revelation, like like what level of consciousness is 21st century Britain in on various different aspects, you know, different social groupings? How aware are people of that kind of addiction to consistently checking your phone and touching it in your pocket, like, you know, 50 times a day or whatever? My sense is people are are conscious of it but don't do really have know what to do about it mm. that is my sense my sense is people are pretty conscious of that to it i don't know i think most adults i know seem to be source of conscious of it and slight and wanting to sort of resist it although not resisting it successfully and kids it really depends on whether their parents kind of point it out to them frequently i know my kids are both conscious of it and constantly wanting to just surrender to the addiction and getting cross about being told that they're addicted and telling each other they're addicted. That's, so it's a discourse in our house. But then I see other kids who clearly their parents don't seem to have, um, it doesn't seem to have occurred to them for one moment to suggest they might not want to just look at their phones for 12 hours every single day. It's different in my family because I'm the most, I'm by far the most addicted to social media than the rest of my family. So. I'm the big child in uh, in my family. I don't think it's a child thing. I think it's like the same as, you know, it's the same as cigarettes. Like that's that's how I see it. So, you know, there was a yeah. point where you used to like wake up in the morning, reach over for your box of cigarettes and light a fag in the same way that people reach over for their phones. Now, I'm very sympathetic that this is a phenomenon, a reality for people. Uh, but I'm hoping that there is a future when the vast majority of people are able to say, oh, shit, man, I feel really sorry for you that you have your phone in your bedroom, you know? And I'm, you know, I don't know. Do you guys have your mobile phone in your bedroom? Because I abandoned that six years ago. Oh, yeah, within easy reach. Yeah. <laughs> How else am I going to know what time it is, Nadia? By having an analog analog, <laughs> analog uh, alarm from, from Argos. That's the ex biggest excuse, the most common excuse. It's always within easy reach, basically, and I do tend to pick to get it and um, look at Twitter first thing before I get out of bed. He's got to see if I've tweeted anything important. Yeah. <laughs> of course. <laughs> I would what expect... said today. What has Jeremy Gilbert said? What has Jeremy Gilbert said is very, very important thing for every single listener, I'm sure. But no, but the reason I bring it up is like is is I'm 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 trying to problematize my own value judgment because I have a quite a strong judgment because I'm speaking at it from a certain vantage point and knowing the way that it affects me. So I would never ever allow my phone or any technology or any screen anywhere near 
my bedroom anymore ever unless there's some kind of emergency but my phone my phone stays you know in 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 the living room but maybe this is not the case for everyone but i can't help but see it through that kind of like in the same ex smoker kind of view do you see what I mean? So I'm trying to like understand, yeah, is there a way yeah. that somebody can have the phone, their phone next to them and waking up and check Twitter and it not affect on a kind of, on a, on a libidinal level, you know, on a, on a visceral level, like how the, the hormones are pumping through their body. You see what I mean? In a way, when I talk about this stuff, there's part of me that's going, this is really important. We should spend hours talking about this. You know, I want to like create lectures on this. And there's another part of me that's going, why is it that as adults, these things have such control over us? Like, I think the children, the, the, like the, the, the issue with addiction in children is like a huge one, but I see it as a slightly different subject, you know, even though like it's the same forces we're talking about. But we're at a point in history where, our relationship to the internet, you know, there's so many more things to talk about in terms of the internet, the stuff that we me- we mentioned before, communication, all of these things that it allows us to do, being able to get almost any information at the t- tip of our fingertips, like all these amazing things about having the internet. But yet the overwhelming thing is the fact of how we've been locked into these forms of addiction and therefore how important digital hygiene is we all know people that are on the really bad end of uh who have really bad digital hygiene who consistently share absolute rubbish to either you as an individual or this trigger sharing who are like constantly sharing things in group or like spamming or whatever like in a way that you would never take a leaflet and just randomly shove it down your uh, your your neighbor's uh letterbox like you know 20 times a day but people do it digitally you know, will there be a turning point for this? This relates us back to the whole platform and shittification sort of thing as well, doesn't it? Because, you know, the, that that sort of like trying to get this sort of like dopamine hit, et cetera, where you get a like, et cetera, these sort of, that, that sort of gamification element of, of social media, that sort of dopamine addiction thing, that is part of the, the central part of the shittification that comes from the particular mode of platform capitalism we have. I mean, we'll talk about this later on, but like digital hygiene, these sorts of things are really useful just for us to get, cope with things. But we basically need social solutions to these sorts of problems. Do you know what I mean? There's more and more, you know, people who are doing more extreme things on the internet, which I would make a value judgment are, you know, harmful, especially with young women in terms of, you know, airbrushing and like wearing various different things or whatever on Instagram to get attention and to get likes because that's how you're seen as validated. So so like this has this has had like a really, really dangerous effect on people's sense of self at scale. And the link between, you know, the use of those platforms in terms of how it relates to imagery and, you know, satisfaction and feeling liked and feeling valued in the world. Like is huge. The obvious comment to make in relation to that is look instagram did not invent the male gaze it didn't invent you know narcissism as a, as a compulsory mode of subjectivity for young women all of these are things that feminist critics and theorists were writing about not just in the 70s when laura mulvey starts writing about the male gaze in cinema they're writing about it you know from like the earliest days of psychoanalysis for example the early 20th century like you know before even de, de beauvoir who we like to talk about a lot so 
I mean, it's to be expected that the inter the intersection between like advanced capitalist individualism and quantification and those existing logics of self commodification and narcissism that compulsory narcissism I'm calling it that uh, feminist critics were talking about from the 1920s onwards with these new technologies it's totally to be expected that, they, that, that what's going to happen is those technologies are going to latch on to those pre-existing behaviors and in seek to profit by intensifying them absent a very conscious social political organization movement effort to resist that so I think that is clearly not something inherent to the tech it's also totally predictable, inevitable, that the tech is going to exacerbate existing power differentials unless there's a really self-conscious effort to make that not happen. But of course, you know, it's only fully resistible by some other mode of social organisation. And th- th- these are all reasons why it's important to understand that Instagram is only going to stop trying to make as much money as it can by working with the grain of some of the most toxic toxic features of capitalist patriarchy once it stops being an organization which is committed above all to capital accumulation but one could have predicted this in advance i don't think any of this is at all surprising on some level well i mean speaking as an influencer myself um, (laughs) it's it's not just the tech is it it's the wider sort of you know the wider structure of work these days the whole fucking hustle culture all of this sort of stuff it's not just the tech it's like the wider world of work and the need to um, sell yourself and all these sorts of things. So, yeah, I mean, this is not solvable, I think. But it's a bit, a little bit like a lot of the discussions here, you know, the sort of individual things that we do and trying to get, like, you know, practice different different sort of techniques in order to, like, minimise the harm of these things are really useful. But, like, you know, basically it is a political project to try to change not just the tech technology, not just the platforms, but the wider socioeconomic setup that they fit into. Do you know what I mean? Stay off the internet. So we thought we would play Get Off the Internet by Le Tigre from, I think, their second album. It's very early. Kathleen Hanna is exhorting us to get off the internet and it's only about 2001. We've ever played Le Tigre before. They're really um, fantastic band. Feminist punk pop incorporating creative use of electronics, late 90s, early 2000s. They're one of those bands I always think are like in a different and better world. They became massive and there were loads of bands imitating them that are household names now. But we didn't get off the internet and here we are. Lots of this toxic behaviour was also available pre-internet and it's like dispersed around the media, do you know what I mean? So a lot of the 
I'm, I'm wary about some of the sort of moral panics around the internet around you know spreading toxic views go read the sun no i am as well i really am actually because i mean i think you know the toxic masculinity stuff the moral panics around people like andrew tate it's not that andrew tate for example isn't someone we should be concerned about and challenge but the internet has also normalized like feminism as a political identity for young women in a way that frankly you know from like the mid 90s until the 2010s you know it was a routine thing for me to ask a, a room full of students like are you a feminist and like none of them would say they were and especially girls wouldn't say they were you know it was that whole thing of it being this sort of this sort of prohibited identity and what changed that was online kind of youth culture and normalizing feminism as a as an identity on, honestly so I'm really, I am really wary of the moral panics because my observed, what I've observed is that there are all these toxic features of online culture and contemporary culture. But you know, the culture, like pre-internet culture, was wasn't fucking wasn't great. I mean, I take your point, but there are some, but on the sharp end of the scale, you know, is that even an expression? I tend to get these wrong. I don't know. What sort of scale are you using? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I I, I get all the English idioms wrong. Right. Okay. So, so, so on the extreme level, more people have access, like more men have access and, you know, young men have access to extreme porn. Like this is a fact right? To extreme porn. So while I agree all sorts of really fucked up shit has happened all over the world, you know, with men subjugating women to all sorts of shit, and this existed in magazines and videos and VHSs in, you know, seedy little shops or whatever, or on the top shelf of your newsagents or whatever, this was still not accessible to endless numbers of people. Right. So while I, you know, don't want to underestimate any human being's ability to differentiate between seeing something that is a performance to, you know, how they engage in social relations in real life, it's definitely had an effect that, you know, women being subjugated and, and, and being treated like objects in a kind of really harrowing way, being viewed by men and boys on scale, like that's had an effect. That's ha- that must have had an effect on like how men view women. Like I can't believe that it hasn't. It's not so much that we're talking about, okay, well, the internet has allowed people to access some stuff that they had before. It's about the quality of that stuff as well. So it's about it's you know, it's not just se- that there's lots of sex on the internet. It's like what kind of sex, because what kind of sex sells? It's like you know, I have an Instagram account simply for work. So the only thing that I follow on it is like, you know, real estate and destinations in the Middle East that I do copywriting for. And because I'm female, presumably I've put this on, like whenever I open Instagram, I don't see those things. If I press on the search bar, I get a set of really extreme like weight loss bodies and kind of pro-anorexia stuff. I've never clicked on any of this, but I still get it. So that's the stuff that I'm talking about. I'm talking about that kind of extreme, the extreme ends of like body modification and, you know, of, of, uh, of if effectively kind of rape culture being normalized. I, I think one of the big changes is that like, yeah, young, young boys have grown up with this. Well, and young girls as well, haven't they? Young boys have grown up with like access to pornography of all sorts of kinds from very early ages. We just don't know what the, what the effect of that will be over the long term. That was one of the things that didn't happen beforehand. 
But when when I say I'm always a little bit skeptical, it's like there was a thing going around the other day of oh, I can't remember Samantha Fox, who was this sort of page three girl where they in the Sun newspaper they'd show women's breasts, etc. And they you know they were showing her naked at the age of sixteen, etc. And all these sorts of things in the 1980s. I mean that's so mild though. It's so mild. Like well, it's you it's so it, compared to now. No, it's like well, in terms it is of the apart imagery from the age of it. thing, but the age thing. Well, of course, <laughs> but 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 now you're getting thousands of women who are being trafficked. You know, the trafficking in industry for for Pornhub or whatever, the massive campaign against Pornhub has has been really important for this. Like, you know, don't get me wrong, like it was still like fucked up shit to be on a train and sitting next to someone who's like got paid three open. But now, I don't know if it's ever happened to you because it's definitely happened to me and my friends. You'll be on the bus and some guy sitting next to you watching hardcore porn on the internet. No, I've never seen that. No, right. Is, so maybe it's is that like a, is that like? Do you think that's a performance for you or something? I like don't that? know. Yeah. I don't I've, know. I've never seen that. That's, I've never seen that. That's all. It's it's yeah. it's it's fucked. <laughs> the question is partly. Was the internet only ever going to be like this? How much of the its negative features are built into it? And that partly raises the question of, well, where did it come from in the first place? There are different ways of tracing the history of the internet, although there's a fairly well-established story about how it came about because there was relatively few people and institutions involved in initially constructing it. But it's possible to emphasise different elements of the story when thinking about what its social, political, economic character has been. If you could pin it down to sort of like two competing images of what the internet would be like, one of them would be as this huge marketplace, which arguably it has turned into. And the other one is like uh, that, that, that it would be so, some sort of... Uh, based on a sort of gift economy in some sort of way. Do you know what I mean? And those two versions of the internet have sort of come up and like people have tried to push them in different ways going throughout the the history of basically pre-internet as well, you know, the sort of like birth of personal computing, then, you know, the model of, of software development, then like the model of what the internet would look like, which also, you know, feeds back and influences the model of software development. You can talk about all of those things, I think, of like as these two competing mo- modes of like of social organization, which does to some degree link back to the sort of qualities of personal computing and then networked personal computing, which we'd talk about the internet. I think it probably is worth just going, you know, going back to the beginning of all of that to some degree, because I think we do have to rehearse this, this the sort of like the California ideology sort of story, partly because it is interesting, but also because we're going to problematize it in some sort of way or, or think about, you know, what were the hopes of the people of, of that time? And has it turned out that way now? Mostly it hasn't actually, mostly like, you know, a lot of the people who had hopes for the, the, the internet as like a democratic space or, you know, even as a space of a marketplace, really a sort of like free marketplace with like small producers and like this idea of like Jeffersonian democracy, which refers to like, you know, it's small sort of perhaps artisans or, Whatever. Yeah, well, it's important to stress for all that, isn't it? That the internet begins 
as an experimental network of computers in the United States in the 50s and 60s, which is largely being sponsored by the military, but is located in the emerging computer science departments in a few big universities. It comes out of the MIT computer labs, where pretty much the pretty much the entire modern computer industry can trace its roots back to the MIT computer labs in the 40s and 50s, and uh, to a le- slightly lesser extent, uh, their e- equivalents at Stanford. Um, which is the main focus of Malcolm Harris's book, who you interviewed for the microdose to accompany this episode. But that mid-year itself is one which is really, you know, it's politically, ideologically, institutionally, always, always already extremely uh, ambivalent and, com- and complicated. So the big wave of intensive military research, which gives rise to modern computing, is happening during and as part of World War II, so is part of the Allied fight against the Nazis, it then very quickly becomes adapted to the conditions of the Cold War. But even the Cold War itself is is a complicated phenomenon. I mean, there's no question that today we have to look back at the Cold War and say, look, this was basically a struggle by capitalists against communism and against any radical form of democracy to the extent that that threatened to enable communism. And the, the, the claims made by cold warriors that they were engaged in some sort of struggle for freedom against tyranny was total nonsense. It was disingenuous nonsense from beginning to end. Yeah, I mean, the other thing to say about that, though, is it's also a battle of a, of the over shaping the the process of decolonization and the anti-colonization yeah, anti-colonial yeah, struggles yeah. well it's the question of whether decolonization is going to lead to democracy and, com- and socialism yeah basically yeah yeah exactly yeah but also but even but within the cold war establishment there's a really there is a really marked differentiation between a sort of liberal wing who think that the way to fight communism is to create uh, generous welfare states and liberal democratic institutions and a, a right wing of the Cold War establishment that thinks that's all that can only ever lead to communism, basically. So you you can't have any of that. You've got to suppress that wherever possible. And and then into that mix, I think you've got to put the fact that you know the core people at the heart of the computer industry and computer science in the forties, fifties onwards, they were they were often motivated just by a, a sheer fascination with the, the technical possibilities of computing. They were, were pretty much indifferent to what its political or social outcomes might be, and and so it's it's complex and ambivalent, you know, from from the beginning. And then the the internet itself, on the one hand, it, there's always it, it's always got close connections to the emerging private computer industry but it's also it's essentially a publicly funded and publicly created institution there's this really interesting book by benjamin peters called how not to network a nation he's an american historian and he makes this interesting argument that the reason the soviets failed to create their equivalent of the internet was because there was all this competition between rival technicians and bureaucrats and the reason the americans managed to do it is because they behaved like the way he puts it polemically is they behaved like socialists you know they behaved all these university departments and computer scientists and military installations coordinated their activity uh, together without trying to um, control it without any one person trying to benefit too much from it and that's how they actually and had all this state funding 
and that's how they actually managed to um that's how they actually managed to successfully construct it so there is the and there was this you know part of the one of the features of the internet from the beginning was that the idea was that it would network military installations and key university departments in a distributed way so that in the eventuality of a nuclear war it would not be possible to take out the whole network by attacking one center so a sort of horizontal non-hierarchical decentralized architecture was arguably built into it right from the start and then the question of well what does that mean to have this decentralized non-hierarchical architecture at your disposal is a permanent question around the, the nature of the internet and obviously people with different ideological political agendas have got different ideas about what you use this totally decent this necessarily decentralized network for like do you use it for spying on your population do you use it for buying and selling stuff do you use it for creating the, the true democracy of the 21st century and that ambivalence is there pretty much right from the start i think and i think it that's one of the problems with any narrative historical account which tries to say well, it was always really one thing. It was always really just a tool of Cold War repression, or it, or it was always really a, a feature of neoliberal, of incipient neoliberal marketization, or it was always, it, it should have been, uh, you know, the harbinger of a new radical democracy, that, and then it got corrupted because it was always ambivalent. It was always unclear what it was for. It was always an experiment, wasn't it? It was always an experiment. So you know, there are computer engineers at MIT who just think who just think it's like a fantastic like experimental thing and they're not really interested in what people are going to do with it and there are people in universities who who think you're going to create this sort of knowledge commons which is going to massively intensify the capacities of of advancing human knowledge and there are people in the military who think it's a useful tool for coordinating military endeavors and and from quite early on can also see its surveillance capacity so that they're all there they're all say they're all saying that's the thing that it's going to be for i mean one one way to think about that is there are different sort of logics at play basically you know and so and people are sort of caught up in those logics they're they're sort of using those logics so one of the the arguments that people use around like arpanet which is like the the military sort of network that predates the internet is that like a lot of these researchers they were saying well we know how to get funding. You've got to say it's got a military use, but in fact, they were particularly bothered about that and they were researching something else. And something else you said, Gem, about how all of these computer bods at MIT, they were really interested in exploring the technology in some sorts of ways. And like, so one of the roots of, of, of that idea of personal computing and then the internet as like expanding the commons, et cetera, one of the roots of that is just the just the habits of those technicians. Do you know what I mean? So one, there's a debate that happens uh, or a... A struggle that happens around how software gets developed and whether you can charge for software. So you have that the operating systems, then you have free software, which also becomes later known as open source software, where where basically nobody um, nobody owns it and it's free, as in um, anybody can like access the the computer code and they can change it for for to um, to suit your own needs, etc. If you have the technical skills, unfortunately, there's a limit to that. And one of the key figures in that. Is this guy Richard Stallman who who does the really early development of GNU, which later become GNU Linux, which is this open source 
um, operating system, something that, you know, and it develops into this mode of production in which loads of people can participate in this thing without necessarily without somebody understanding exactly where it's going. And so different, different, um, um, ways of dealing with a particular problem will branch off and the one that succeeds best will will flourish and the other one will wither that sort of idea so nobody's really in control of it and like what the where where that idea comes from that doesn't come from like an ideological commitment to, to socialism or communism or something it comes out of that's just the way that people were doing things when in the early days of the computers you know basically all of the software which was then on like printed out cards etc uh, punch cards and these sorts of things and um you know all of that was it was the custom that you would share that freely because the point was to explore the technical possibilities do you know what i mean there's a very famous letter that bill gates creates where he sort of says you know i've created this program called basic everyone's sharing it but that's not fair i don't want to make a lot of money but i need to recover my costs etc and that's sort of like the birth of the commercial software industry basically people point to so that's in the 70s just for people who don't know we've moved we've moved on from the mit labs of the 50s yeah in, yeah into the 70s yeah. that's the moment when it's people are starting to think it's a real commercial possibility that there'll be a market for personal computers rather than just big institutional computers and yeah Bill Gates more or less invents sort of the modern concept. I mean, he arguably invents modern concepts of IP. I mean, we'd always we'd had copyright since the 18th century, but he he pretty much invents the idea of imposing a copyright style IP regime on computer code, and that is how. Which up to that point, indeed, it had been quite alien to the the practices of, of software development because they had come out of a culture of essentially a, a lab science culture in which it was generally assumed that scientific advances were in were de facto in the public domain. Yeah, and you see this coming back, this this sort of battle coming coming back up over and over again. We could talk about Tim Berners-Lee, who invents the sort of the HTTP protocol. Actually, that's redundant. That protocol is redundant, isn't it? He invents HTTP, um, which is the protocol that the, that the World Wide Web runs on, basically, and he gives it away for free because his idea is it needs to be, it needs to be taken up and, 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 and run with. But like to go back to the free, the free software story, you know, when the software industry begin begins to emerge, and like you get intellectual property, but also people just like the the operating systems for both Mac and for for Windows, they both become enclosed so that you can't get access to them and change them, to, so that you can alter them in some sort of way. That's the one of the motivating things that creates this whole movement, the free software movement. Where somebody like Richard Stallman, who's working at MIT, you know, he, he stays up all night for like you know, a month after month, like writing in this huge uh, process of writing uh, the kernel for a new operating system. His motivation is that like this is interrupting our practices, the practices of trying to explore this and trying to explore the potential of this and trying to get as many people involved as possible, sort of idea. There's this technical sort of logic going through it. There's this sort of, you know, commercial logic or capitalist logic, which is sort of going through it as well. I mean, we could also just talk about the the modes of thinking that feed into this as well. You know, you could go back to the development of of cybernetics, you know, and systems thinking in the post-war, in, yeah, the post-World War II era. In some sort of ways, that, that the idea of cybernetics is to try to remove 
conscious control to some degree to try to have not um, a command economy or a market economy it's something something in between you know i mean there's a sort of cold war logic to that sort of cybernetic thinking as well which feeds into this and then there's all sorts of other ideas that go into it you know or modes of thinking that go into it and that's where you come across stuff like the, the california ideology basically which is this idea that part of the counterculture is very concerned or thinking about personal augmentation via technology and how that actually follows on a little bit from personal augmentation perhaps through experimentation with psychedelics or even like you know personal augmentation through uh, practices such, such as meditation etc what some people talk about as the the personal revolution uh, and how that sort of mode of thinking feeds through into particularly early computer culture i think timothy leary who's a big sort of like acid guru in the 90s he says that computing is like computing in the 90s is like it is the same as acid in the 1960s or something like that i thought we should play for this episode some tracks from musical scenes or genres which really were enabled by and existed partially or entirely on the internet. I mean, in a way, that's just all music after about 2002. So maybe it's an arbitrary classification. Maybe that's the only thing all all these tracks are going to have in common. But one of the first is such scenes. Actually, it was the very early grime scene. There's, a, there's this entirely predictable mythology about grime now that it's this street music that comes from the council estates and it was the sound of you know underground raves whereas actually the very very earliest days of grime the music wasn't that popular with a lot of its what you might think of as organic audiences you know i was teaching lots of students from east and south london council estates on a music program amongst other things at that time and i was interested in grime and my colleague at the time steve goodman better known as code nine a a academic from a even more privileged or considerably more privileged social background than me i think was really into grime but none of these none of the students were into grime because they that was the moment when the kind of music they were going out to was either uh, uk garage or just what was called funky house at the time to sort of us influence clubhouse and grime didn't really become pop very popular with those audiences until a few years later i remember around this time being on a trip to probably the same trip i've mentioned before to california and being in san francisco and getting taken to this really hip cool club where this was only the early 2000s where the club night was streamed online and this was like a really radical thing to do and having a chat with some guy you know a white upper middle class bay area guy at this club who heard that I was from East London and started talking to me about grime and all the grime artists he was interested in. And his relationship to it was the internet. So that early grime, the very early grime scene, it was this network of basically avant-gardist intellectuals who could appreciate the formal radicalism of the music and a very small numbers of, of local fans of 
the artist in question. So it's really interesting to observe that. Anyway, the absolutely classic seminal early instrumental grime track, before it was even called grime, when the artist in question would have referred to this style as Esky, was Wiley Eskimo. We could play some uh, an example of the genre that has come to be known as hyperpop. It's one of the several kinds of music, actually, like like lo-fi that you can say are all basically synonyms for bed- bedroom laptop pop of a particular kind. And an early, I think from about 10 years ago now, very popular, interesting example of that was uh, High by Hannah Diamond. Sometimes it feels like you're simply looking right through me. Do you think that's just the way it is? I'll never know. Baby, I wish that we could just meet at a party. I think we could have great chemistry. You looking deep into my eyes I know that you're on the other side And now I'm dreaming Tell me you know me And that you miss me already Baby, are you with me? Is it real? Producer Chow tells me, never having really listened to the lyrics, is, is actually about fancying someone online. But uh, in my mind, it's, a, it's an interesting example of Hannah Diamond's sort of hyper-feminine aesthetic, which almost carries that hyper-femininity into sort of cybernetic territory. Hi. We could also play from around the same time a track from Grimes's first album. Grimes becomes famous, become famous mostly for being Elon Musk's girlfriend, but I think in some ways, again, her her sort of experimental bedroom pop exemplifies uh, internet laptop musical aesthetics in some way, but we could play Oblivion. Steve anecdote was uh, one day just sitting in my office and he comes by and he says, uh, hey Tripp, uh, you've never taken LSD, have you? <laughs> no. And I said, no. Straight out. <laughs> and he said, yeah, I thought so. And then he walks away. So of course, you know, he and I understood each other well enough that he knew that I knew that what he's basically doing is saying, I just came out of a meeting with somebody and they said that you disagree with me in this way about this thing. And I'm just thinking to myself that if you had just dropped acid, you wouldn't be so damn screwed up. <laughs> I mean, that does lead straight into you talking about the, the Californian ideology, doesn't it? Californian ideology is this quite short essay 
written by Richard Barbrook and Andy Cameron. Yeah, in the mid nineties, that goes on to become quite influential within sort of media studies and then wider critiques of internet culture. And it's responding to the fact that really up until that point, up until around the mid-90s, most both academic and sort of journalistic discourse around emergent internet culture and Californian Silicon Valley cyber culture was pretty much uniformly celebratory. What was coming out of things like Wired magazine was cheerleading for the emerging tech industries. But also most most of what had been coming out of academic commentary on it was very much informed by a sort of casual postmodernism, which was excited by the possibilities of the internet, both in democratizing communication, but also in the ways that, for example, a lot of online communication at that time was potentially or even necessarily fairly anonymous. So people were sort of were liberating themselves from any fixed sense of personal identity by using multiple avatars on Usenet, you know, not avatars, using multiple handles on Usenet groups or whatever. And the the Californian ideology essay was a, a riposte to all this stuff, and it said its basic argument was, well, actually what's emerging out of Silicon Valley is this fairly coherent ideology that synthesizes some elements of the most individualistic strands of the, the counterculture, the 60s and 70s, with... A, a socially liberal neo kind of wing of neoliberalism, which has already manifested itself politically in, in the form of Clintonism, to the extent that Clintonism was politically liberal. And it was politically liberal if you were a middle class gay person, not if you were a poor black person. And it recognises that synthesis, and it re- and it's really pointing out the extent to which it's quite complicit with emergent forms of 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 capitalist ideology. I think. One reason, I think actually I have to say, it's really it's it's really difficult for people reading it now who didn't live through through that moment to properly get their heads around it. Because in 1995, it was still quite a novel thing to note that it was possible to be a social libertarian of some kind and yet to be completely complicit with neoliberalism. Because the form of neoliberalism, that certainly people in... Uh, what I like to call the Atlantic Anglosphere, America and Britain, had lived through was the form you know, typified by Thatcherism and Reaganism that combined neoliberalism with a strict social authoritarianism. Things had already been a bit different in New Zealand, for example, but nobody was paying attention to that uh, in those places. So basically, a lot of people in 1995, whether you're talking about media, cultural studies, academics, or just casual members of the public, they sort of assumed, well, if you're in favour of like gay rights, as it still would have been called at the time, then you can't also, but then you can't be in favour of privatising schools because those things just don't go together. That's Privatising schools is like a Thatcher-Reagan policy and they're really homophobic. And it wasn't really until people had lived through the Clinton administration and then the first few years of the Blair government, to be honest, that it became widely appreciated, oh, actually... You can be fully on board with the neoliberal socioeconomic program. I mean, a economic program and political program, and still be, in some regards, a comparatively socially 
liberal. So the fact that it was part of the culture of Silicon Valley or or Silicon Valley's most visible cultural manifestations to be quite self-consciously liberal, even culturally libertarian, the fact that that didn't mean they were necessarily progressive in any other sort of way, you know, it was something that really needed saying and it was re- and it was really novel to say it. It was really important to say it at that time. So it was a really powerful critique. I think lots of really bad readings of that California ideology essay went on to inform the views of people like Adam Curtis, who just wanted to construct a narrative according to which hippies like personal computers and and that helped neoliberalism and that shows hippies were always just all neoliberals anyway um but that was always that was a really bad reading and we've talked about that kind of thing on the show loads i think i think it was really powerful and i would say i mean broadly speaking i think that californian ideology hypothesis has been really really borne out by everything that's happened over the past 20 odd years because 30 years because For example, the psychedelic renaissance, so-called, especially in the States, you know, has very much gone hand in glove with the increasing global hegemony of Silicon Valley. As uh, Alex Williams and I, in our recent book, Hegemony Now, argue that Silicon Valley is in effect the, the, the culturally hegemonic fraction of global capital. And it's because of that really, rather than just because of the imminent brilliance of psychedelics and their culture, that, for example, psychedelics have been more or less normalised amongst important and influential social groups in places like California, because they were always part of this culture of Silicon Valley. And, of course, Malcolm Harris, in his book, does a very good job of demonstrating the genealogy of the really, the extremely right-wing and are both libertarian and social, economically libertarian, but socially conservative wings of Silicon Valley culture, as exemplified by people like Peter Thiel, the guy who created PayPal. And he does a really good job of showing this genealogy, which tr- can trace their thinking all the way back to very early manifestations of Californian capitalism in, in the 19th and early 20th century, when it. It's integral to the development of Californian capitalism was still a hideous, you know, genocidal war on indigenous people, for example. So he does a really good job of showing that. I think it's important to understand that, for example, in, in 2020, over 80% of the political donations made by Silicon Valley companies, institutions, or individuals uh, went to the Dem- Democratic Party rather than Republicans or, or Trump. So it's still the case that that Californian ideology, I would say, is pretty. I think that I think Bar Brooks' analysis is still really nailed. Like what an emergent common sense of a key fraction of capital, and it is still it is still the common sense of most of the people there. I think in a way which is really important to understand. I think the other thing that goes on as well is is. You know, so when we were talking about the, the Clinton era, etc., with the socially liberal aspects of it, of course, and and the, the same with with Blairism to some degree. Gay marriage was um, actually Osborne, um, Cameron, wasn't it? <laughs> but you know, it was, was equalising the age of consent was the big thing. That Blair yeah, did. yeah, yeah. Um, but of course, like Clintonism is, it goes along with with this incredible expansion of the prison industrial complex. You know, which in some ways you could say, Christ, if you looked at it that way, it would be this incredibly authoritarian moment. Do you know what I mean? 
Um, and I suppose one part of what goes on is as the sort of face of Silicon Valley changes, you basically start to pick up different aspects of that history. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And sort of say, well, these are more important than this is less important. I thought the bit that Malcolm Harris kind of made several points, I mean, little little bits of like little vignettes that I, you know, stuff I'd not heard of before. I didn't really understand the relationship between, you know, colonial settler uh, populations and you know the building of Silicon Valley. I thought that was really interesting. The stuff he said there. I mean, and maybe it's 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 misrepresented in terms of the scale of it. But I thought, ha, oh, that's a link that I'd not thought about before. Yeah, well, there's no. It's not misrepresented. There's no question that you know could that form of colonial settler colonialism is foundational to American capitalism. I mean, not just in Palo Alto by any means, or right across. No, right yeah, across yeah, yeah. I just specifically, specifically in terms of how it relates to the logic of, you know, Palo Alto and Silicon Valley. That's the bit. Yes. Um, and the argument about like the California being what was the expression he used like it was like the last first or whatever because it was kind of the last yeah. yeah, the last will be first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I thought was really, you know, I didn't, I never thought about the South Africa and 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 Israel connections to investing in that area of the world. And I think you know it makes total sense, and it allows you to see geopolitics and the relationship to you know those kind of industries uh, in in that part of California in a different way. So I thought that was enlightening. Yeah, I thought so too. That was very very persuasive. I mean the other the other thing Malcolm brings up a lot people listeners you should go away and listen to the in, the very good interview that I conducted um, with Malcolm. One of the other things he brings up is this is the centrality of like eugenic thinking, particularly around Stanford University. One way which we can interpret that is that one of the ways in which this sort of what what people might call personal revolution or this sort of like focusing on the self, these technologies of the self and how they feed through into, in, into uh, technologies of the technical or technical technologies is that like that, that sort of like eugenics mode of thinking is one of the ways in which that personal revolution can go. Do you know what I mean? So the question is, are there other ways in which it can go? <laughs> which I think there are. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, that's an important point. I think we need to elaborate it, though. If anybody doesn't know, I mean, eugenics is the pseudoscience of racial purification. So it was this huge idea in the late 19th and early 20th century that very early genetics and evolutionary theory, but also completely racist theories of civilizational development and the experience of colonialism and imperialism from the victor's point of view, all of these things converged to create this pseudoscience which said, well, the really important thing about having a successful culture, a successful civilization, is that you have to maintain the high quality of your racial stock. And that means you basically want people who have any form of disability, who aren't good at really hard work, or who aren't very clever, you want them to reproduce as little as possible. And you want the people who are good at all of those things to reproduce. I mean, it is sort of, from a contemporary vantage point, it's just like a, it's, it's like a comedy, extreme comedy version of just con of contemporary meritocratic thinking. You know, the way, the same way rich people today love to tell themselves and everyone else they're rich because they deserve to be rich because they're better at things than people who aren't rich. This was the, the winners of global colonialism telling themselves, oh, yeah, we didn't just, uh, we didn't just like brutalize and genocide all these populations because we were lucky enough to be the first to invent guns no it's because we're like genetically better than they are and, and we've got to make sure we stay that way and we've got to make sure we stay that way good story and the point is of course 
the way that kind of translates into a kind of individualized version of that story, early 20th century eugenics is sort of anti-individualist. It really thinks that you have to just forego the interests of individuals for the good of the population. That's how it translates into fascism. The good of the race, I think you'll Yeah, find. for the good of the race. But then this, the way it translates into this sort of individualized version of itself in the late 20th and early 21st century is because, well... You can, you you can, it once you become obsessed with ideas like self optimization, like you know, doing your micro microdosing with your acid and doing your mindfulness and doing your yoga and doing your highly complicated gym training and doing your weird sleep exercises and drinking your and taking your super vitamin stacks and all this stuff, all for the purpose of becoming the best you you can possibly be then that can easily slip into the idea that, well, if maybe if some qualities are inherited, maybe if some of what makes me good at running or coding or anything else is genetic, then maybe actually, um, you know, I ought to be selecting a mate on, on on a genetic basis. And maybe actually it's not a coincidence that so many of the other people who are like, you know, really good on all these, who do really well at all these things I care about, look look a lot like me. Like maybe actually my capacity as an upper middle class white man to self-optimize myself uh, isn't a, just a function of my economic privilege. Maybe it's because like I'm a, a upper middle class white man and upper middle class white man are inheriting advantages genetically. So yeah, it can, uh, it, that self-optimization model, it can take on this eugenic character, can't it? I mean, that is the point at which a certain element of Silicon Valley self-optimization culture today does shade into neo-eugenic thinking. It precisely, in, in, in the, and that is the ideology embraced by people like Peter Thiel and uh, a certain strand of Trumpism in the United States. Sorry, I spent ages there elaborating a point you'd made really quickly, but I thought otherwise it might be lost on people. No, you elaborate it very well. Yeah, and, and uh, we could pin it down a little bit more about the the contemporary eugenics in in Silicon Valley, you know, in a sort of like focus on on like protonatalism or basically having lots of children. The right sort of people should be having lots of children. Yeah, like feeds- Jeffrey Epstein. <laughs> Jeffrey Epstein was obsessed with the idea. He didn't have any children, but he was obsessed with this idea of like replicating himself by having loads of children with you know with women who would have to be you know physically and intellectually perfect. Like he, he never got around to doing it because he couldn't he couldn't get anyone to do it. He couldn't get any of these like apparently super high super IQ super for women to agree to have his babies but he tried well i mean Elon musk as well elon musk has got lots of children nobody knows how many children he's got perhaps that's got what's going on with boris johnson as well actually yeah (laughs) he's probably too thick to realize it i wonder if any of this relates to the new trad wife uh, resurgence uh, movement but maybe it's not i I haven't done my research on whether whether trad wife uh, vibes a lot of which which is mediated online is kind of specifically or particularly california whether it's more midwesty i'm not i'm not sure i am not sure yeah i mean i think it does fit it fits into that general that 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 general sort of idea or conspiracy theory around that muslims are out are outbreeding us and that the left have got a conspiracy of white genocide to uh, replace white people with non-white people that sort of idea basically and that fits into that trad wife and that the role of the of the woman would be to have stay at home and have children 
basically. There's an excellent book came out a couple of years ago uh, on all this by uh, Ben Little and Alison Winch called The New Patriarchs of Digital Capitalism, Celebrity Tech Founders and Network of Networks of Power. It's a fantastic book, which is precisely about the resurgence of deeply reactionary thinking on gender within the, this right-wing fraction of the, the the broader tech fraction of capital. They trace very clearly exactly what we're talking about, exact, and exactly what you intuited, Nadia, that indeed, precisely what we're talking about, it, 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 it does also manifest itself in these patriarchal forms because they use exactly the same logic. It's these tech bros who look around and they observe an industry in which women are still a minority, and they say, oh, it's not true. that this is, it's, That's not because of patriarchy. It's because of genetics. And, and women should simply embrace their role as... Yeah, as mothers and housewives, which is what they're genetically and evolutionarily suited to. So, yeah, you're absolutely right that it does it does shade into trad wife stuff totally. Yeah, but what's interesting about the trad wife stuff is is that the, at least you know at the front of it, what is being perpetuated by is women who are you know talking about the virtues of staying at home and dressing in a certain way and being obedient to their husbands like on instagram and tiktok like there's a huge movement and that's the bit that i don't know how it like specifically links back to silicon valley but you're right i mean it makes sense that it it would and of course it is kind of related to white nationalism and all sorts of things well, you're right. Oh, geographically, I'm sure it is more popular in the Midwest than California. I mean, all the voting patterns would suggest that. But um, if we're talking specifically about Silicon Valley, like as an actual place, of course, I mean, yeah, the, that fraction, that section of Silicon Valley represented by people like Peter Thiel, they see themselves as a dissident section of their own class fraction. Yeah, they they see themselves they see themselves as dissenting from the Californian ideology in their embrace of what they see as much more realistic and much more powerful ideas such as neo eugenics and such as you know traditional gender roles. I mean Peter Thiel, who Peter Thiel is on record as saying women shouldn't vote, women should never have been given the vote, for example. So, so it's both. In some sense, like the overlords of this stuff have their offices in Palo Alto, as the Malcolm Harris book makes clear. But yeah, their political followers are are the people who actually voted for Trump, who are much more distributed amongst out in the Midwest. We lived on farms and then we lived in cities, and now we're going to live on the internet. John, stop! I think something's going on downstairs. I hate you, Chuck. I think we should play Telephone Thing by The Fall. Why? Well, it's sort of about telephones and about surveillance. <laughs> it's not a close enough list, to, a close enough <laughs> excuse to play a Fall song, I think so.
Sing in. <laughs> this is a regular feature of Jeremy Gilbert sings the hits. <laughs> oh, I can only sing a song sung in a Mancunian accent. That's uh, what we've now established. We should play Telephones and Rubber Bands by the Pe- Penguin Cafe Orchestra, who are a sort of avant pop. I think you'd probably call them ensemble. Uh, most active in the 1980s and 90s, I think. I just like the song. Perhaps we ought to turn a little bit to what we do about all of this. I know we've talked a little bit about it before, but you know, what what how, how do we get out of this? How might we get out of the the current the current model of the internet? What while we do that, I think that also takes us back to the history a little bit because there there are there are waves in this in this history of the internet in which people have imagined or proposed different models of of how the the internet could develop or what the potential of the internet is so one of those is we could look back a little bit at the history of free software and and how that went into into the development of models such as like wikipedia basically in which people sort of contribute in a decentralized manner you know in which nobody's in control of how it develops you know and there's sort of all protocols about you know people debate about how uh, Wikipedia um, it can be edited, etc. These sorts of things, a process of continual debate, uh, and sort of like probably like ten years ago, I think there was this this idea, this idea of like commons based peer production, and so so free software, Wikipedia, these sorts of things. That, that this idea that it brings us back to this uh, this sort of like gift economy idea. Like the, the thinking behind it is the reproduction costs of digital property as opposed to like physical property the reproduction costs of it are so so low so near to zero that they're negligible which allows a sort of like a gift economy or even like you know various versions of what we might think of a cyber communism like basically the growth of commons the commoning and all this sort of stuff you know that sort of model has sort of fallen away quite a lot now you know, it did. That's not where the way that they that most of the internet went. Of course, Wikipedia still exists, etc. But you could put that sort of idea of what a platform could be next to platform capitalism. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, I mean, I, don't, I think the the history of free software and the history of social media platform. I think it illustrates some interesting features of the relationship between capitalism and commons. Always, and it's something I've said in in stuff that I've written. And it's, it's derived from other people's thinking, although I don't know anyone else who's formulated it in exactly those terms, is that, well, capitalism always has to create these these contexts within which there can be a kind of maximization of collective capacities. And, you know, it sort of has to create commons sometimes. I mean, the most basic example is just is creating factories, which are never commons, but they are sites of collective, kind of massive intensification of people's collective productive capacities, which then have to be disciplined into producing saleable commodities. But 
I think under certain circumstances, capitalism sort of has to enable commons or commons, it has to allow commons to emerge so that it then has stuff it can commodify and can extract from. And I mean, open source software is an absolutely classic example. Open source software becomes possible. I mean, you were saying this, Kim, when we were preparing the show, but it's not an accident that it comes out of Scandinavia and it, and California, basically. It comes out of context where in which either because there's loads of venture capital money sloshing around or there's a social, highly developed social democratic state, there are some people who have the opportunity to just sit around and mess around with code and not even really worry whether they're going to get paid for that bit of code a lot. The outcome of that is the Linux operating system, which... I don't know if it's true to say really it's kind of it hasn't retreated it's it become so ubiquitous uh, as an in, as the basis for institutional computing perhaps like the utopian thinking that went along with it has retreated put it that way because it's yeah it absolutely is what really widespread well it's well I would also say that I mean a lot of software is free uh, or it it comes with hard I mean it's hardware that's not free it's hardware that's really expensive a lot of software is free compared to the prices people had to pay for it like in the 90s or or it's incredibly cheap so i think it has had a real effect actually i mean the, i mean really the, i mean the situation the situation we're in now today where like if you want to use even a proprietary package like microsoft office not that many people have to pay for it and if you do have to pay for it it's not very much that situation, I think, was brought about because of the pressure from open source and free equivalents. Because the, so a package like Word cost the equivalent, like in the late nineties, it cost you the equivalent of, you know, hundreds of quid. Today, it costs lots of money. That stuff, if you if you weren't getting it cracked, so I think it has had a really big impact. Richard Stallman always had this line that um, uh, free software is free as in free speech rather than free as in free beer. <laughs> so it's like it's the free it's the ability to participate the ability to to use the software in any which way you want is the, is the key thing rather than the the free as in you don't have to pay for it but the fact that like that that linux is like free or incredibly cheap that will obviously have an effect you know the 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 free are very cheap alternative will obviously have an effect on the price of software as well but you're also it's also true i was said this when we were planning the show from the point of view of someone who's taken an interest in things like the free software movement since the 90s, it's really disappointing, and it is something I'm surprised by, actually, that there still isn't a really widespread, widely used like domestic implementation of Linux. If you're an enthusiast, you can install a, an operating system on your computer like Ubuntu, which is the most widely used sort of graphical interface Linux implementation, but you've still basically got to know coding to be able to do anything with it. And that's partly because it's just never had the level of institutional support, development support that would have been necessary to make it really a proper marketplace rival for MacOS or Windows. And that, and like, I remember when you know, Corbyn was leader of the party, I was talking to people involved with policy for the party, and that was something I suggested at one stage. Like one of the policies should be the government will sponsor. It's basically turning Ubuntu into a proper commercial, a proper rival for Windows and MacOS, because that could could quite easily happen. Like it wouldn't need that much investment, and it's never happened. Yeah, can you imagine that? Can you imagine the savings of like universities not using absolutely awful (laughs) Microsoft versions, like Teams and all that sort of stuff? Absolutely, yeah.
Another scene that really emerged and became synonymous with the aesthetics of internet culture, again around 10 years ago really, was Vaporwave. I don't even know the name of this track. It's always written in Japanese letters. I don't know how you pronounce it, but it's that it's the track that became very famous, very famous on YouTube. And it was partly because the graphics for it were so uh, distinctive and it was uh, the artists were calling themselves Macintosh Plus. I think that's right. I, I've only ever known it as that Macintosh Plus track on YouTube. So I don't even know if, what its proper name is. Another really recent example of a an internet an internet identified music scene is SoundCloud rap. Uh, most famous exponent of that would be the now departed XXS Tentacion. Again, as Chow pointed out when we were discussing this, uh, quite a number of the most prominent SoundCloud rappers have been accused of very serious uh, forms of abuse. We don't really want to be necessarily promoting them. Chow suggested we play a little pump track. Uh, we could play his track Elementary. I've been selling bread, said Elementary. I've been hitting lit, said Elementary. Bitch, I'm Lil Pump, Trapper of the Century. Bitch, I'm Lil Pump, Trapper of the Century. Elementary, 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 Elementary. Serving bricks and like the fur grain. I've been counting bass, balling like our D-Way. Musically, it's really exo- it's really interesting that SoundCloud rap. It it's taking hip hop or rap in the direction in some ways it's been heading in ever since around 1994, and it completely moves away from sort of the dance floor or com- genuinely beat-driven music towards something much more abstract, something almost willing itself into a kind of internet disembodiment which is compelling, if also quite depressing in many ways. I view computer science as a liberal art. It should be something that everybody learns, you know, takes a, takes a year in their life. One of the courses they take is, you know, learning how to program. Isn't part of the, the vision for democratizing the space either that everybody knows how to do coding like you're taught it yeah. like you're ta- taught maths right yeah. because there's a massive you know there's a there's a massive divide between people who can relate to the internet in that way and people who can't relate to the internet in that way and of course the one thing that we haven't mentioned is like the reams of people that exist in Britain today that actually don't have access to a smartphone and don't have access to the internet in the first place. I mean, I work in a local library often, and there's reams of people of all sorts of different ages who have to come in and use a computer. So that's the first thing is that I think as a matter of in terms of policy, like if we're going to say that we think some form of the internet is still going to exist in the future and there isn't going to be, you know, we're assuming there isn't going to be an apocalypse where there isn't an internet, then what are the policies that need to be in place for people to be able to act? 
access it, whether it's kind of cheap broadband or... But then there's the problem of extractives and mobile phones, right? And the cost that that has like to to the planet, etc. So there's all sorts of like different considerations. Like, do we want everyone to be able to code? Like, is this a necessary skill? Is it a language that people need to understand if we're going to democratize the space? And what are kind of the goods and, and services? Because the discussion that we've just had has been, or that you guys mostly have, have, have had, has been about like things around software. That's like super interesting. So for me, there's kind of two areas. It's like, what do we want in terms of software? And what do we want in terms of training and what do we want in terms of like rights around that sort of stuff to have a democratized internet space and then the second thing is what is the regulation if any if it is even possible or what is the legislation or regulation to be able to mitigate for the effects that are being instilled into the design of platforms in the first place that are creating an experience in terms of how we interface with the internet, which is perpetuating addiction and you know dopamine responses and effectively are making us ill on a mass scale. Because it's those two things, isn't it? Like, you know, there are, yeah, there are uses totally. of the internet which are not about, you know, you want to go into the internet because you want to research something. You want to go on the internet because we're recording a podcast like now, you know, you want to have a Zoom meeting, whatever. Those are not the addictive spaces, but the vast majority of the time that people are on the internet, it involves some kind of like, you know, scroll, maybe not the vast majority, but there's, you know, understand there's that sphere yeah, of like yeah, addiction and yeah. illness as well. I think it probably is the vast majority, actually. I think, yeah, yeah I think it interaction is. via social media platforms is probably the vast majority of interaction. I think you're right. And this is something that we didn't talk, we haven't talked about, which is probably for, you know, another episode now, but that whole, the creation of like what information, the understanding of what information is and the blurring of kind of like, fact and opinion and all of these things that have been perpetuated through these platforms trying to create you know spaces of you know angst and anger rather than discourse and understanding etc so there's all of those things to think about in terms of the future of the internet well i think you yeah you're completely right and i think this is one reason this is such an interesting subject is because it's one of the social phenomena or sets of social phenomena today about which you can most clearly say Everything that's cool about this stuff doesn't originate with capitalism. Everything that's cool about this stuff originated with government-sponsored blue-sky research. You know, this is something that always shocks people when you make the point, but the modern personal computer, pretty much everything we recognise in it, the screen, the keyboard, the mouse, the internet connection, was all developed by the late 60s. And it was developed in government-funded computer laboratories. The good things about social interaction platforms, things like forum models, which I think are still really great, sort of like things you see today exemplified by Discord servers, for example, which I think is a great way of people communicating with each other, which lacks a lot of the drawbacks of social media with its compulsive permanent feeds that you have to keep up with or get lost in. All that stuff doesn't come from capital. It doesn't come from institutions that were primarily oriented towards indefinite capital accumulation all the stuff we're complaining about all the stuff we don't like comes from institutions pursuing relentless endless unlimited capital accumulation and so it's quite clear that the answer to that question is you know how do we have the good stuff without the bad stuff it has to be taken out of it has to be extracted to be removed from capitalist social relations either through some program of general mutualization, through turning all these companies into giant co-ops, or through governments con constructing alternatives to them. So I think there's no question 
you know, at the, at the level of political demand and political policy, we're never going to get the internet we want and the internet we deserve unless governments recognise that that should happen and that it won't happen without them acting and without them intervening. Perhaps another way to sort of reframe that, and which brings us back to Cory Doctorow's enshittification. I get to say that word one last time. Enshittification of the platform's argument is that what he's talking about is the thing that people actually want are things which are which are the sort of affects and the qualities of commons. Basically, <laughs> do you know what I mean? That's what they. Yeah, yeah. That's what they. That's what's attractive. Yeah, totally. And what's going on with the enshittification of the of the internet of the platforms? I got to say it one more time. Is basically that corruption of the commons by by capitalism and also and also by a logic of colonialism it's something i've realized that i should i should have mentioned earlier and it really lines up with the malcolm harris thesis you know one of the most interesting books on the politics of the internet and social media i've seen over the that's been published over the past few years is a book by nick caudry and uh, ulysses ali mayas his co-author and it's called The Cost of Connection, How Data is Colonising Human Life and Appropriating It for Capitalism. And their argument is that the logic of enclosure, the logic of privatisation, the logic of data harvesting, which saturates the platform economy and the social media economy, their argument is that is fundamentally a colonial logic. It's a logic of appropriation and primitive accumulation and, and enclosure. And it's I hadn't thought I hadn't thought about that properly before this moment, but the Malcolm Harris argument that the logic of Californian capitalism was always a colonial logic, it really syncs up with their argument in a very interesting way. That whole like, you know, the the idea of a colonial logic that fits with the commons idea. Do you know what I mean? The the idea of like the enclosure of the commons, the idea of like terra nullis where there's nothing there so let's just go in and and, and grab it sort of idea that basically what people are after is the commons or the things that come out of something which is which is a commons what what you need in order to have a commons that's sustained is you need people who are going to do the work of commoning and the work of commoning is like governing deciding on the rules by which that commons is maintained so that might be a way of like addressing this problem of of do we all need to become coders so well no but you know what we actually need is is uh mechanisms by which we can decide what we want from these platforms and guide their development basically so that will definitely involve coders but it doesn't necessarily have to involve coders uh, sorry it doesn't necessarily have to mean that we all are coders because we can be working with coders who you know, um, and have some sort of that democratic governance over these platforms. Do you know what I mean? Which does lead us into things such as platform co-op alternatives to to the platforms, which do exist. You know, there are there are nascent versions of, of these. So it's a really interesting experiment in in London called Wings, uh, which is a food delivery co-op basically, and it's those alternative to Deliveroo, etc. It can exist in in London because the margins are really high. But quite hard to compete with delivery outside of th- those real core areas etc so it's got limitations on it because if this is something a self-generating sort of co-op although they are working uh, with the local council on that so because the big problem of course is you know with platform co-ops is how do you get the kinds of capital the kinds of of of, of money to compete with the big platforms who are prepared to operate at a loss a lot of the internet music we've been playing to me is 
yeah, it sounds like laptop music and it kind of lacks any, quite consciously lacks any connection to an organic embodied community. And this is something, this isn't just an old person talking. Like a lot of my music students in their early 20s make the same comment about a lot of this kind of music. But one artist who I think has managed to integrate some of the sonic distinct, sonically distinctive qualities of of a lot of internet era music with a more kind of organically embodied and effectively compelling sound is the British producer, vocalist, artist, FKA Twigs. Although I think she's based in the States now, who I think is really one of, to me, is really one of the artists who uh, makes me feel some sense of hope for contemporary uh, experimental pop music in very its various forms so that we can have a we can have a track by F, from FKA Twigs most recent album this track would be Ride the Dragon think are some uh, positive developments in recent years if anything about because it seems to me that one of the things that's happened in the past couple of years with the relative decline of the social media platform the return to newsletter yeah for example the acfm email newsletter oh that sounds interesting how do you <laughs> how do you subscribe to that again you go on the website i think and i'm sure there'll be a link in the podcast but yeah substack for example is an example of the email coming back as a technology. And I mentioned Discord already in passing. The popularity of Discord servers, I think, is because they're the latest iteration of the forum as a social technology. And forums have an honourable history going back decades. And forums have real advantages over social media feeds because because the whole point of them is they archive chat they archive threads so you don't have you can go look at it whenever you want you don't have to be constantly checking to see if you've missed something or to keep up with something so all forums i think are are, are a fantastic technology for facilitating various kinds of long-term group discussions and you know discord servers which were initially just for people to play games together on i think have become really popular because they are the latest implementation of that basic forum technology so I think we have been seeing a little bit of a retreat from the more toxic forms of of platform in the form of things like Twitter and you know Facebook with their relentlessly addictive compulsive feeds back into forms of communication which let people decide when they want to engage how much they want to engage and I think that does indicate that you know there is a it's still a degree of progressive potential although that like I would point out that like what what's missing from that is like the public sphere element yeah you know, some sort of replication of the public sphere element and if you were going to talk about about forums which were like in the public sphere you'd probably point to reddit as like this absolute classic example you know which is in fact very very useful finding out how to do things and these sorts of things but that's itself has just gone through a process of minor shitification uh, and in fact it you know because they they changed the way in which the 
the, the forums operate, and that provoked a moderator strike. Actually, people were refusing. People who moderated really good, really, really, really um, popular Reddit said that they would refuse to um, uh, put up any new content until Reddit changed its policy. So I think that's the problem. That's the thing that's missing. Whereas, you know, I, I do think it's really useful, this idea of like people are going back to newsletters, etc., um, because you can have some sort of control. You have direct control over who gets those, who gets that information, whereas you don't have that on Facebook. You don't have that on Twitter anymore. Sorry, that's really destroyed your nice uh, ending. <laughs> positive ending. <laughs> what do you think, uh, Nadia? Well, the things that, that matter to me with the internet are probably about those, those, those two things. The questions are for me, what are the sorts of platforms and what are the sorts of spaces of interactions that would A, help humans create strong and sustain strong bonds in, you know, whether mediated online or in real life? And what helps humans see themselves as agents of change? So that might sound a bit abstract, but I think, you know, it's basically the opposite of scroll mania and getting lost in indefinite threads and feeling like you need to constantly be updating things and the kind of like cheap, cheap performance interactions. So I think, you know, like email lists and newsletters and, and, and you know, that, that, that way of, like you mentioned, Jeremy, have, being able to archive threads and go back and think about it, but also to be able to like contact people individually and have some sort of forum for like having a discussion about it is quite good. So I think like, you know, the development and popularity of things like Zoom during the pandemic were actually really important for people to be able to keep in touch. I don't think I don't think I want to see a world where relationships are mediated entirely online. I think human beings need uh, IRL and they need touch and they need their other senses to be stimulated in, term in terms of being healthy. And I think that has ramifications for, you know, like how we we are able to develop and see ourselves as political actors. So I don't have, I don't quite have a vision, but I know something that's better than, you know, in shittified platforms when I see it. And I think, you know, a newsletter is probably a good place to, to start and forums, some sort form of um, uh, genuine space for, for discussion. This is Asking Cloud.